If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 555. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. This is B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, purchase one of my courses there or 12 of my courses there or 20 of my courses there. And, of course, you keep this podcast free of charge. You can also click on that support tab at BrianMcClanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can get a book plate if you want an autograph of one of my books. It is the season of giving, so if you want to get a book, I've got a bunch of those out too. Southern Scribblings, the Jeffersonian tradition are the latest two, but many, many other books. You can purchase all those books wherever books are sold online in particular. You're going to be hard-pressed to find them uh, in stores now because uh, just uh, bookshelf space is shrinking. But you can get them online anywhere books are sold, and they make great gifts. Also click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. All those items make great gifts for that Brian McClanahan Show fan in your life. And as always, rate review, and subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, all major podcast streams, and let people know you're listening to the show. Share it around on social media. Uh, Send me those show requests. That's the way we keep this podcast growing. Now, I'm going back in time the next two episodes. We're going to stretch back a little bit. We're going to go back to early 2021 for this particular episode, and then late 2020 for the next episode. But I want I'm going to preface this with a with a tweet that was actually published just a, about a week ago or so. And it was from uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones who of course is infamously part of the the or at least the intellectual progenitor of the 1619 project. And she put out a tweet that I found interesting and somebody sent it to me. So this is kind of a listener generated episode. Uh, She said this, quote, Further, the Declaration is not a liberation document, but a document arguing for secession. There is that lofty opener, and the rest is a list of complaints about all the crimes the British committed that forced the colonists to secede. And I saw this because somebody sent it to me, but it was retweeted by Ben Dominich, who is uh, John McCain's son-in-law, married to uh, Megan McCain, but he is the editor, uh, publisher at The Federalist. And his response to this, she's just a sick, horrible dumbass. This is her response, his response to that. She's just a sick, horrible dumbass for saying that the Declaration is not a liberation document, but a document arguing for secession. Now, here's the thing. She's 100% right about that. She is 100% right in that description of what the Declaration actually is. It's a secession document. In fact, the first paragraph 
and the last paragraph, or the most important paragraphs, that first sentence, what she calls the lofty opener, it's not really the lofty opener. It's actually what they focus on is that second paragraph where you have that first line. And this is what all the neocons and all the Straussians, and in fact, what Nicole Hannah-Jones focuses on as well. It's that line. And this is where I've said that people like Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ben Dominich are actually the same people. Now, Dominich is going to say they're not, and Nicole Hannah-Jones is going to say they're not. This is the point that I made in uh, early 2021 when I wrote that article for Chronicles where I said, look, they're arguing the same thing, they just don't agree on how it worked out. The neocons and the Straussians, people like Ben Dominich, would say, well, I mean, the most important line of a declaration is the second, it's the second paragraph, first line of the second paragraph. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. This is the most important line. It's a liberation document. Not understanding that what the founders were actually doing there, and I'm going to talk about this idea of was there really a founding. This is what I'm going to get into today. But the, the founders, so-called, and I call them that, the founding generation, because it's, you know, they're, it's what they are, generally speaking, were simply reinforcing the liberties that they believed they had had for 500 years at that point. And because those liberties were being abridged by the central authority, they were going to secede from the British Empire. So it's a complaint about the crimes the British committed forced the colonists to secede. Yes, 100% correct. And if you look at Pauli Meyer, she had a hard time even finding evidence of all of these supposed crimes against the American colonists. Now, it's not saying they didn't exist, but there was evidence is just not there as much. So, Nicole Hannah-Jones is actually correct in this, and the neocons and the Straussians are actually incorrect. And I and this is where Michael Anton got very upset with me, saying, well, you're actually saying Nicole Hannah-Jones is more correct than we are. Well, in some cases, she is, right? She is. She's more correct than you Straussian idiots are. This is true, Okay. It doesn't mean she's right about what she's done with the 1619 Project. And I'm going to get into that today. But the fact that she's right about this, I mean, we have to say this, this is true. And the Straussians are going to run around with a fairy tale. That's, that's the point I was making a year ago, almost. We, if we're going to base conservatism in America, quote-unquote, on a fairy tale, we're going to lose. You see, the point is, we should be saying, yes, it's a secession document. Yes, we're trying to enforce the liberties that we have been given as Englishmen, the ancient rights of Englishmen, in 1215. And that's the important thing. And if those rights are being abridged, then we have an obligation. It is not just our right, it is our duty to throw off such government and to institute new governments, laying their foundations in such forms as to them shall seem most likely to affect our safety and happiness. So, essentially... If the government is abridging our liberties, we have a right to secession. That's what conservatives should be talking about in America. Not some Lincolnian fantasy, some self-righteous myth. That's the problem. So I want to get into an article that was written in February of 2021 by Jeff Pollitt. It was published uh, in, in Modern Age, and then the uh, ISI.org 
picked it up. But the title is, Did America Have a Founding? Did America Have a Founding? And I like this because it actually, it's, it's interesting in how this works and what he's going to do here. So, he says, The New York Times 1619 Project has renewed debates over the nature of America's founding, arguing that our whole constitutional system was cast using slavery as its main, if not sole, material. The project's authors conclude that our polity must be taken apart and remade, or at least set on a new foundation. This kind of argument is not unprecedented. Analysis of American origins have almost always served the needs of the present. References to the founders have long been used by those on the left and the right alike to defend their positions in contemporary political and cultural battles. Whoever describes the past shapes the present, and if America was badly or unjustly founded, then exposing those flaws allows a reshaping today in accordance with a new vision. But what if America was never founded? His question is, what if America was never founded? And he goes back to Russell Kirk. He says, Russell Kirk's The Roots of American Order traced the influence of four cities, Athens, Rome, Jerusalem, and London, on the formation of the American Republic. First of all, we have a federal republic, not a singular republic. We'll, we'll skip over that part of this. He demonstrated that America's order did not arise de novo, but emerged from a patrimony of thought and the lessons of experience. Political ideas, he argued, are carriers of historical experience and judgments, the residue of hard-won truths gained in the crucible of trial and error. Kirk believed that the unique historical experiences of those four cities created paradigmic uh, understandings of order that Americans wove together into their constitutional fabric. His book was written in 1974 in anticipation of the bicentennial of the Declaration of Independence and amid serious political scandal. It's not a stretch to see how the book was motivated by the problem of corruption, not only personal corruption, but the corruption of a regime, that is, its systemic decay. How America could avoid the fate of the republics of the past was the central question to which thinkers put their minds during the framework of the Constitution, and Kirk raised that question new in the shadow of Watergate in Vietnam. So what he's saying here is that, look, America is not founded, created anew. He's saying not de novo, not new, but it's the extension of this old tradition coming out of Athens, Rome, Jerusalem, and London. It essentially is an extension of Western civilization and the Anglo-American tradition. Russell Kirk is 100% right about that. There was nothing new created in 1776 or 1775 or even 1787. Now, for the most part, I will say there was a new thing in the American political experience, and that was a written constitution. You see, because the British model is unwritten, the American founders decided to write it down, which was important. Because if you write it down, you limit the powers of the government. You codify what they have. You say this is it. And of course, you could point back to the English Bill of Rights and say, well, I mean, this they wrote that down too. They wrote down the Magna Carta. But to write out the entire governing charter was unique. It was uniquely American. They don't have that in Great Britain. They have an unwritten constitution. He says, note the title, The Roots of American Order. Kirk does not evoke some variation of the American founding, which in contrast to the organic metaphor implied in the word roots, would make America seem more an artifice than a historical development. Kirk wanted to emphasize continuity rather than discontinuity in American history.
I like this, okay? Because let, let me bridge off here. So Wells is saying that the declaration is a secession document. She's 100% correct. Dominic is saying it's not. It's, she's, she's just an idiot for saying this. Well, the joke is really on him because he's incorrect. And Russell Kirk is 100% correct that there is a continuation here. This is when Clyde Wilson and I wrote our book, Forgotten Conservatives in American History. Uh, we attached it. Now, we did say there's something unique about American conservatism, but it's also based on the roots of the Anglo-American tradition. And they talked a lot about this stuff. I mean, look, Patrick Henry saying that we're going to ensure that we adhere to the ancient constitutions of our fathers. They understood what they were doing. This was about holding the British accountable, holding the king and the parliament accountable as they violated the rights of Englishmen. It wasn't about Lincoln's view of the founding. As as has been said, Lincoln revolutionized the revolution. He, He was creating something entirely new in the Gettysburg Address. If you go on out to YouTube, I did a little video on this for Abbeville Institute where I talked about that. He revolutionized the revolution. That's what Gary Wills said, who wrote a book on the Gettysburg Address. Very good book. Revolutionized the revolution. Lincoln was creating something entirely new in 1863 in the Gettysburg Address. And so was every other Republican at the time. This is not something that was unique to Lincoln. Anyone that did that. And you had Northerners doing this before the war. And of course you had Northerners doing it during the war. And Southerners spilled a lot of ink trying to say this. You're you're distorting what the Declaration actually is. Nicole Hannah-Jones is actually saying what Southerners were saying before the war. So to the neoconservatives and the Straussians, that's bad. Now, she would say that this is... Uh, this is true, what she's saying is true, so we can't even rely on the Declaration for anything, even though she's saying that the promises of the Declaration have not been met. She says this in her opening essay, opening essay to the 1619 Project. So, there's that. So, Pollock continues, his book includes as an appendix a chronology that begins in 2850, excuse me, B.C., and ends in 1866 with the publication of the American Republic by Orisus Brownson. One is tempted to see the 12-page chronology as idiosyncratic, and it is. But its unifying theme is that history is full of contingencies that require sensitive thinkers and great men somehow to turn the apparent randomness of circumstances into meaningful action. Kirk draws attention to efforts to snatch back uh, immortality from time's all-thieving hands, overseeing all such human efforts driven as they are by pride and marked by tragedy and irony stands the watchful eye of Providence, a God who intervenes in human affairs and who in the process generates both resentment at his interference with our freedom and rage at not having such interferences result in perfection. Kirk's chronology is not intended to be Whiggish, a simple timeline of progress that somehow culminates in American greatness. It is fitful and haphazard, telling a story of achievement and failure, of greatness and meanness, of rise and fall, of things divine, tasted, partially in things satanic swallowed wholly. Of a providence whose mysteries, workings that the finite human mind can grasp only by faith. As Kirk liked to say, paraphrasing T.S. Eliot, there are no lost causes because there are no gained ones. 
And that's interesting here because, of course, in this, what we're looking at here, what, what Paul is saying, essentially he's defending, or at least he's attacking, I should say, he's defending the traditional American order and attacking this righteous cause myth without actually saying it. Now, Brownson is an interesting character, and maybe one day I'll focus more on Brownson. I'll do an entire podcast on Brownson because uh, he is a northerner, and he's writing this book about the Constitution, and he's pretty hard on the South, but uh, I, 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 I'll, I'll get into that at another time. So I want to skip on down because of time. I mean, it, it could take me a while to get through this essay, but I want to skip on down to this part, from Magna Carta to the Federalist. So he says, is there an American founding in this sense? Some would have us believe so. America, the thinking goes, is a propositional nation based on universal and ahistorical principles that are instances of divine command and favor. The founders were wise and just, who somehow transcend the petty interests of the day. One might even think them demigods. But this is not how Russell Kirk saw it. Regimes, he argued, are not created out of abstract principles, but develop out of the circumstances of the times of trouble within which a people find themselves. Under the most fractious circumstances, leaders will articulate a vision of common life and the common good without which a people will perish. The leader's charisma makes order possible, and his sin makes constitutional limits necessary. This helps us understand better Kirk's, Kirk's chronology, which reveals the back-and-forth movements of such articulations. Tellingly, Kirk reflects Brownson's belief that the vision cannot achieve, receive greater articulation and clarification than in the American Republic. Impressed in America's DNA is the ancient wisdom of a conventional people gathered together under God to model the word to the world God's provincial, providential care. Excuse me. So I want to go back to, is, is there a propositional nation? Well, I think that Kirk would say there wasn't. I know he would say there wasn't. And I think Pollock would say there wasn't. He basically says that this doesn't doesn't exist, and he gets into the to the Federalist and uh, and what Hamilton and Madison had to say about such things. And if you want my opinion on Hamilton and Madison, you should take my originalist papers classes at McClanahan Academy, where I get into most of these essays there. And so I'm going to skip over some of that stuff where he gets into Federalist ten and fifty five and fifty seven and and fifty one and one. He goes through all these different variations of the Federalist all these different essays in the document. And I want to get to the conclusion of this essay. And he says, The tendency of factions believing themselves to be just to vex and oppress those who disagree with them is the main source of tyranny and corruption. The mechanisms of power must be adequate to the task of checking such tendencies in order to protect the proper exercise of liberty and maintain civil peace. These mechanisms borrow from Publius' understanding of what human beings are, creatures whose tendency towards self-interest and self-deception may overwhelm the, their capacities for virtue. But those engaged in a founding will have none of that. Again, Rousseau makes it clear in the social contract that the lawgiver who reconstitutes a regime transforms human nature. The lawgiver takes away each individual's interest and replaces it, it with one that is alien to him, namely the good of the whole. The individual is subsumed into a greater whole from which he receives his life and his being. The act of founding reconstitutes not only the political regime, but humanity itself. Man is replaced by citizen. And the scope and force of its application, this is an act of tyranny. Such acts are 
antithetical to the American story, which generally sought to preserve individuals and their liberty while maintaining a peaceful civic order as a precondition to a flourishing one. So when he skips on down to the end, he says, to put it another way, American order has been deforested by generations of ideological fires. The effort to falsify the American experience at the level of theory has now played out at the level of practice, too. In each case, the object is to dismantle the painstaking work done by our forebearers and the civilization they nurtured. It was predictable that once the authors of the 1619 Project convinced our elite institutions that the story of America was simply the story of slavery, alienated youth would take that message to heart and to the streets, as we saw in the rampant vandalism and iconoclasm that broke out last summer. If the foundation was wrong, so was everything built upon it. And if wrong, then it needs destruction. But the metaphor of a founding is itself wrong, and the same tradition that is tainted with injustice is also, and most importantly, the source of its remedy. Our order lives through its roots in the past, tangled as they are, and it cannot survive if they are ripped up. So, when we talk about the founding, we always have to show that continuity. There was a continuity between what the founding generation was doing and the old order of Western civilization. The Declaration was a set of grievances, just as the English Bill of Rights, if you read that document, was a set of grievances against James II. It's the same format. You can't have one without the other. The Declaration doesn't exist without the English Bill of Rights because it's a contested document. It's saying you are violating these things and so we're having a glorious revolution. We're going to topple you and put in a new king. In this case, we're having these contested things and we're getting rid of you entirely. We're seceding from you and creating new governments here to protect these ancient rights of Englishmen. These things that were created over 500 years, codified, created, I mean, that were protected, and you're violating those things. So Dominich doesn't even know what he's talking about. I will say Nicole Hannah-Jones does, but what she does, and as Pollitt points out, is then bring ideology in, and because there is a distortion of that for some people who, by the way, during the founding, we can look at this as bad now, but they were not considered citizens. However, they did have rights, but they were not considered citizens, and that, of course, would be Africans living in America. In some cases, they could vote. some cases, they couldn't. some cases, they were slaves. some cases, they weren't. But regardless, if they weren't citizens, they didn't have these rights, and this is where she really gets into her, her uh, attack on the founding. But the fact is, it wasn't ideological. It was based on concrete, permanent things, as Kirk would call them. It's based on history, Western civilization. This is what the founding, quote-unquote, really was. And if you look at the writing of the Constitution and what went into that, they were basing this on experience. As John Dickinson said, experience must be our only guide. Reason may mislead us. This is not ideology that created the Constitution. It's not an ideology that led to the Declaration. It's the result of the Anglo-American tradition and Western civilization. That is exactly what's happening in 1776. 
and even moving forward as we look at the drafting of state constitutions, of the U.S. Constitution, of the Articles of Confederation, of the Bill of Rights, of all of these things that came out of that particular generation. You look at that generation of people, they drafted state constitutions, an Articles of Confederation, a U.S. Constitution, and a Bill of Rights. Four major things. And, of course, the Declaration of Independence, which, by the way, as I've said, is not organic law, even if the United States says it is. It's a defounding document. It's a document of secession. It's not put into U.S. civil code. So that's important. I think that we need to be clear on these things as we talk about the founding generation, as we talk about the roots of, and roots is a great word, the roots of the American order, as, as, as Kirk calls it. But it's not just created out of thin air. These people weren't making it up. It was based on concrete things that they had, concrete experiences and concrete historical examples that they had over time. All right. So I wanted to cover this, and I skipped over a lot of the essay because it gets into some other things that, uh, we, I mean, we could, have fo- we could have talked about Madison and Hamilton and the Federalists, but the fact that the founding, so to speak, that term founding, I do agree with Paul that, that it could create an impression that it's something new, something entirely different, and it wasn't. That's the important takeaway from, uh, from that generation of men. It was a conservative conservative, quote-unquote, revolution. In many ways, it was just a war for independence. The order stayed the same. That is the important thing to note. The order stayed the same. It was a war for independence. Nicole Hannah-Jones was 100% right about that. The neocons and the Straussians were 100% wrong. And we should call them out for it when they are. All right. See you next time with the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.